0: Tonight we're going to uh, look at another couple of verses in Psalm 38, and I hope this is blessing you. David is pouring his heart out to uh, all of us, and we're going to talk about uh, repentance, words that are real common and that we throw around a whole lot, but maybe we don't think about them, or think about it enough, or think about it as deeply as we ought to. What what does it mean to repent? And there are some things that whenever you really do repent of your sin that have to change. You're going in a different direction, but you're also thinking differently about your sin. Now again, in this psalm, we don't know what David's sin was, but he acknowledges in here that his problems were because of his sin and because of his foolishness. If you'll kind of scam back up, you know, before those other verses. He brought this on himself, and he's under the chastisement of God. And so the Lord will take whatever he has to do, and he'll use whatever he has to use in order to get you corrected. It's not just that he's mad at you, even though he does hate sin, and it's not simply that he wants to uh, take it out of your hide or anything like that. His goal is to train you and to correct you, And, uh, of course, to keep you out of sin uh, anymore. Well, David, as we've seen, he's come from this point at the beginning of saying, Oh, Lord, don't do this in your anger. Don't do this in your wrath. And then as we worked our way down, we saw that he began to change and he began to soften. And have you ever noticed that when you're in sin, you're cold? You're indifferent or you wouldn't fall into sin and you're hardened and, and you wanted to, to defend yourself. You want to make excuses and you want to do like Adam and Eve did when they were uh, confronted by God in Genesis, uh, I believe it's the third chapter, and uh, they wanted to blame. Adam said, it's the woman that you made and Eve says, well, it's it's the serpent and, and all with the implication that somehow if God had done something more, and uh, protected us better, we wouldn't have fallen into sin. Well, we do the same thing. There's always an excuse, and there is always something to blame. Back in uh, 1985, I did a paper on a man named George Mueller. Have you ever heard of George Mueller? And uh, he lived in uh, Bristol, England, when he became famous and well-known. But he actually was a German. And uh, his name would have been Georg Mueller. And uh, we just say George Mueller because that's a whole lot easier and it doesn't sound as weird. And uh, George, growing up, he had an abusive father and he had a sickly mother. And George was not a good kid and he was not a good guy. He did not love the Lord, he did not know the Lord he liked to drink even as a very young teenager he liked to gamble and carouse around in taverns and things like that and uh, he was the least likely person that you would ever say would become a minister or serve the lord in a church and uh, he really seemed like an unlikely person to really uh, that they would write books about and talk about him but george uh when he was young he writes and talks about himself that uh, he was so busy gambling and was intoxicated while his mother was dying. And he was so busy doing what he wanted to do, he didn't even pay much attention to her, and she died while he was in a tavern at, I believe, about the age of 14, and he was drunk during that time. Just not a good person at all in any way, shape, or form. No compassion, very, very selfish, But something happened to George, and uh, he trusted the Lord and was saved. He was invited by a friend to a Bible study, and he had no interest in the Bible, no interest in any kind of Christian organizations or fellowship or anything like that. But for some strange reason, he said, yes, he would go to the Bible study. And at the Bible study, they would read from the Scripture, they would pray, they would sing, and and they would kind of do that. Uh, A repeated cycle. And uh, he said during that time that something happened to him. And that's the night that he trusted Christ. And the night that he was converted. And he began to learn and began to grow in the Lord. Later on he felt called to minister to and serve Jews in England. And so he moved to England. He was in London for a while. And then he started noticing... This is a guy who uh, had a real compassionate heart after he was saved. He started noticing that the little children, the street children, the urchins as they called them, uh, they were not being taken care of. And they were dirty and they were ragged and they were thin because they didn't eat well and they were having to beg. He saw in uh, Bristol, England, in the in the paper, I've forgotten the name of it, a letter to the editor where somebody was writing saying, why do we have to see things like these children out on the streets? When I go into town, I go for to shop, I go and take my family, I go for entertainment. I don't need to see these skinny little dirty children begging for money and begging for food. And uh, that... Moved Mueller's heart. That kind of an attitude. Because they really didn't do much for anybody back then. And so he decided he would take matters into his own hands. He started building an orphanage. They called it Ashley Downs. And uh, he started providing a place for these children to stay. In fact, uh, this one that I just mentioned, uh, it would hold about 600 orphans. And George Mueller had a very strange conviction, strange to us, but God honored it. And he, he said this to all of his staff and all of the people helping him, I will never publicize any need that we have. I will simply pray and trust God to meet that need. Well, the book that I read and did my research out of was written by A.T. Pearson, P-I-E-R-S-O-N, a very old book Because he was a man who knew George Mueller. And so he's writing firsthand about this guy's life. And uh, there was a a night when they didn't have food to feed the orphans. Somebody came to Mr. Mueller and said, what are we going to do? He said, set the table and bring down the children. So they sat the table and they they brought down the children. And then Mr. Mueller began to thank the Lord for the food. And what he was going to provide. And there was nothing there. All of the people thought this is going to be embarrassing. What is going to happen. And, and uh, th- this is just not going to be good. The children would be disappointed. And before he could uh, finish praying. A knock at the door. Somebody went to go answer the door. You know what it was? A man that had been hired to cater the meal for a wedding got his dates mixed up. The wedding was not for another day or two, but he had all of the food and had it all right there. And he said, I didn't know what to do with it, but I thought Mr. Mueller could probably use it. And so they served all of those children. There was another time when the boiler went out. and The boiler in that cold English winter was on the uh, north side of the building that they had. And so when the boiler went out, that meant that they didn't have heat. When they had to repair the boiler, they had to take the wall out, which meant they had no shelter. George Mueller got the staff together and they prayed and asked God to have favor on them. And in that cold British winter, a strange thing happened. The wind started blowing from the south and not the north. And they were able to keep the children warm enough and they were able to fix the boiler. Just story after story after story after story about a man who said, I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to make my needs known to man because I don't want to get dependent upon anybody or their donations or their favor or anything like that. I can trust my Heavenly Father. Now this, uh, this famous man... Who uh, came out of the Plymouth Brethren movement later became a, a very strong Calvinist and and a and a missionary and an evangelist and a social worker and uh, built several orphanages by the way in a time when they just didn't do those kind of things. You would be surprised, by the way, how much in our nation and in our world and in Europe that comes out of the medical field, that comes out of prison reform and orphanages and different things like that that Christians all started that they want to make it sound like we're just a bunch of do-nothings or anything like that but that's not true if Jesus had never come and if there was not churches there were not churches on earth you would see very little of any of the things that we uh, call social work or social justice or any of those type of things they did it for the glory of God and all of this came from a man who was drunk while his mother was on her deathbed. This kid that you would not think would be uh, worth much of anything. Back in uh, Chelsea, we had a guy that said, well, he's just not worth shooting. And that's about what you would think of young George Mueller. But God can, as my father-in-law used to say, he can take a crooked stick and hit a straight lick with it. And we forget sometimes about the power of God and the grace of God and the way that He transforms people's lives. Now again, when we look at David here, one of the things that uh, impresses me about the Scripture is it does not hide its hero's flaws. If this were written by just a, a regular person or a friend of David... You wouldn't hear about David's sin, you wouldn't see his flaws, you wouldn't have an admission like you do in this psalm, this is because of my sin, my iniquity, my foolishness. David would always be the giant killer, the Philistine slayer, he would always be the wise king, the standard bearer, but we find in the Bible that uh, it's very honest about the flaws of its heroes. Jesus is the only one, of course, who is perfect. But even when you uh, read about one of the early apostles who was one of the founders of the early church and prominent in it, the apostle Peter, and what do we know about him? Well, we find out that he denied the Lord at the trial of Jesus. Well, what kind of a leader is that? What kind of a hero is that? We find out in the book of Galatians that he had some problems with prejudice, And uh, he would act one way around the Gentiles and then another way around the Jews so that the Apostle Paul withstood him to the flesh. And speaking of the Apostle Paul, who many people would say is probably the greatest Christian who ever lived, have you ever read Romans 7? He says, the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Well, who admits that? And who records those kind of things? Because the heroes in the Bible are not just these perfect individuals who get everything right. They're flawed human beings who sin like we do. And a lot of the times when they write their advice to us and tell us what to do, I think that's brought up by the Holy Spirit out of their own life and out of their own experience and maybe even out of their own failures. I've often wondered if the book of Proverbs... Came out of Solomon observing his dad, King David, and the mistakes that he made. And of course, Solomon wasn't perfect either. We find him straying from the Lord and doing all kinds of terrible things until the end of his life when he gets right with God. So I'm grateful that we have a God who's honest with us. I'm grateful that we have a book that is not written by men to cover up people's sins and their flaws, but rather to expose them and to show how merciful and kind and gracious and forgiving our Heavenly Father is. Because this is what gives sinners like us hope. Now, when I was about 10 years old, I walked an aisle, and I went down and I took somebody's hand, and then they took me uh, to a Probably on the front pew. And they had somebody that talked to me and counseled me. And uh, I don't remember anything about that other than that particular thing happening. I don't remember what I said. I don't remember what they said. I don't remember anything at all about that. I do remember that assuming that I was saved, assuming that I was a Christian, uh, as I got older... And I went through some things and I was always in church because our family went to church and it was not optional in our family. You you didn't dare ask my mom or my dad, are we going to church today? That was a given. We were going. Whatever the weather, whatever the situation, however late we had been up, whatever other activities were coming up, we were going to be in church. And so uh, being in church, I was always exposed to the Word of God. And the Bible says, faith comes by hearing, And hearing by the word of God. And I remember over time as I was exposed to the word of God. And as I got up through high school thinking I was saved. And not really caring about it all that much to be honest. And I remember as I got into college and I kind of took a nosedive. And then my conscience was bothering me so bad about the way that I was living that's when I transferred to uh, Oklahoma State. Never had it intended to go there, but I had a high school friend who was there. And uh, he's the one that you've heard uh, preach that has ALS right now. Pray for him. He is uh, preaching at his church on Sunday. And he told me just the other day that he can tell he's really diminishing and growing weaker. But anyway, he had a profound impact on my life. And uh, he said, let's go to church. And so we did. I hadn't been to church on my own in well over a year. And uh, we went to church and we met some guys there that later on, the, the four of us were living in a house, kind of looked like a, uh, if you're old enough, you'll know what I mean, looked like a Green Acres house. And, uh, but we lived there. And I, I lived there with some guys who really did love the Lord. They read their Bibles when they didn't have to. And they would get together and say, if you've got time tonight, I'd like to talk to you about something I saw in the scripture today. And I'm thinking, what are these weirdos? Who does this? And I can remember just listening to them and being around them had a profound impact on my life. To the point that in 1982, I came to the realization and understanding that I had never been saved. So what was the difference between being 10 years old, walking an aisle, and doing everything? I mean, I assume I prayed a prayer and did all of that type of stuff. And 22, when the Lord changed my life. And it's what we're talking about tonight. When I was 10 years old, I had no concept of sin. I had no real conviction of any kind of sin. I had no understanding that I was going to be eternally punished. Because I had broken the law of God. And so I really didn't repent when I was 10. Because you have to turn from something and to something in order to repent. From something and to something. And in our case, it's turning from sin and to someone. And that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the difference. When I was 22, I actually felt the weight and the burden... Of my sin. It wasn't just a flippant uh, thing. It wasn't just, uh, I'll do whatever I need to do. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. It wasn't anything like that at all. I became, for the first time in my life, absolutely desperate for God to do something for me to relieve the burden of my sin. And I'm afraid that uh, the pastor that Sammy and I grew up under is certainly right. He said, You can't get someone saved. Until you get them lost. Now let that sink in. And a lot of people they just come up and they say well I want to get saved. Saved from what? Why do you need to be saved? Who is it that can save you? What, what's going on here? And they have no clue and no idea. They just pray the prayer. Join the club. Do the ritual. Get dunked. And, and, and now they're in. And yet they are like I was. And they're never dealing with their sin. And so uh, when I got to these particular verses tonight, I had a burden on my heart. And uh, notice how David changes here. And this is something even a saved person has to go through. We still sin, and we still need to be repentant. We need to be repentant all the time, every day, in every situation. But I want to ask you this. Do you really have this kind of thought About your sin. Do you really think this way about sin? And look at Psalm 38. And look at just verses 17 and 18. And David says. For I am ready to fall. And my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare in my iniquity. I will be in anguish. Over my what? Sin. Have you ever anguished over your sin? Have you ever been really bothered by your sin? Has your sin ever really grabbed you and convicted you because the Holy Spirit was dealing with you knowing that God was displeased with your sin? He loves you, but He hates your sin. And we have read in this psalm that God dealt militantly with David And he was not going to allow David to continue on in his sin. Later on when David has his adulterous uh, encounter with Bathsheba... God actually sends a prophet to him. And the prophet tells David a story that just riled David up. And I I always get the idea that when Nathan said, there was a rich man with a lot of sheep, a poor man with one little lamb. And when the rich man had company over, he stole the poor man's lamb, barbecued it, and fed it to his friends. And David is just absolutely beside himself. That man shall die. Okay, That's a little extreme. No, that's a lot extreme. You don't kill somebody for... Stealing a sheep, you you have him repay it four times is what the Bible prescribes. But David is kind of showing off for Nathan. I'll show you I'm righteous. And people that are living in sin, they tend to get legalistic, they tend to get judgmental, and they tend to get angry about everybody else's sin. And the reason is they're so burdened down about their own. They're in anguish and they're suffering under the chastisement of God if they're a saved person. And if you've ever been around a lost person who starts getting convicted of their sin, man, they're, they're like a bear. They're no fun to be around at all. And I remember that while my dad was in Vietnam, my grandpa would go to church, but he was a lost man, and you could tell when he was under conviction because uh, having Sunday dinner was just not a whole lot of fun to be around him. And uh, he was under conviction for a long time before he trusted the Lord. There's just something about the conviction in a lost person or chastisement in a saved person. Well, David's described it here. It's like being shot with an arrow. It's uh, mentally and physically, spiritually and emotionally just exhausted. And it uh, takes its toll on your physical health as well. And that's what he's describing here. Have you ever been that serious about a sin in your life? Have you ever been that bothered or burdened about a sin in your life? Have you ever really had that anguish that he describes here? And so when we uh, take these two verses and we outline them, we get a, a, a picture of what repentance really looks like. And number one would be this. You see your vulnerability... You know, sin has a way of making you proud. And you fall into sin because you are proud. You think you've got it. You think you can handle it. You think everything's going to be okay. But David, at this point, he says in verse 17, For I am ready to fall. This is a person who is being humbled, or maybe we would say humiliated, uh, when I think about the difference between those two words, humiliation is very embarrassing, painful, and awful to go through. And a lot of times because of the way we live and the way we think, we end up humiliating ourselves when we actually should humble ourselves before the Lord. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. This is a verse you ought to have memorized. This is a verse that ought to be just in the, in the forefront of your mind. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, let him who thinks... That's an important word. Thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Now, it's kind of humorous to me some of the things that are written in the Bible because the Bible will talk about people who deceive themselves. Can you uh, think about how mental that really is? Really, you deceive yourself? How do you do that? You know, uh, James talks about... We can be like the person who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forget what manner of man we are. And that's how we are. When we can look in the Word, we can have our quiet time, we can go to church, and it doesn't change us. And it doesn't change us because we assume the mirror, "Ah, it's not that bad. I look pretty good. It's not a big deal. And we go away with this picture of who we are, and that picture is not reality. We're living in la-la land. We're living in a dream world. And uh, the reality is when the Holy Spirit shows us who we really are, what we're really doing, how ugly it really is, how awful it really is, how abnormal it really is for a believer. That's not the way we are supposed to live. And now it's time to do something. We've got to change. We've got to repent. We've got to go back to the mirror and wash our face and comb our hair or whatever we do. We can't continue on in the same way that we are. And so that word deceives himself, deceiving themselves is uh, interesting. That we could actually lie to ourselves and we're dumb enough to believe the lie that we tell to ourselves. That's, that's not uh, really good, is it? That, that's kind of weird when you think about it. And uh, the same thing is true in this verse that we just read. Therefore let him who, what, thinks he stands. You know what the implication is he's not really he thinks he is but he's not really he thinks he is standing firm but he's not he thinks he's being obedient but he's not he thinks he's putting on the good show of being a good christian but he's really not he's only deceiving himself because everybody else can see it but he can't him who thinks he stands to think you stand is a very proud and arrogant situation here. David says just the opposite. The spirit's dealing with him. He's under conviction of his sin. He's repenting. He's seeing it and he said, "I'm I'm really close to falling. I really cannot stand on my own. I really cannot stand up against this pressure." And that's the first step in repenting and really seeing things that change the proud person says uh, believes the big lie I can handle this and how many times have we heard that how many times have we heard somebody say oh it'll be okay I've got this or how many times have we heard somebody after everything came crashing down say well I thought I could handle it I thought it would be okay I thought I could manage it I thought I could keep it out of every other part of my life I thought I could keep it from Hurting other people. That's the big lie. Um, this makes me think of the passage in Joshua chapter 7. Particularly in verse 19. Now this is the story. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Right? Can you imagine when the children of Israel finally crossed the Jordan? After all of those years of wandering in the desert. And they are thinking, on one hand, they were wondering, W-A-N-D-E-R, and uh, now they're wondering, W-O-N-D-E-R, how are we going to do this? We're just a group of ex-slaves, and we're the second generation. We're really not trained to fight. We're really not good at all of this. How are we going to do this? How is God going to give us the land? And Joshua said, oh, well, here's how. We're going to go to Jericho, that walled city, and uh, it's a fortress, actually. And we're going to go to that, and we're going to march around it. Oh, are we? That's your strategy? That's a great strategy, Joshua. And, uh, you know, God will take care of us. So they went, and they marched around the wall. And then they went back to their camp. Can you imagine what they probably were saying? Can you imagine what Joshua heard? Well, that worked. Yeah, that was a good deal. That's a great strategy. Now, I may not be a military genius, but I don't think that's how it works. And they did it the next day and the next day and the next day. And they did it until they had done that one time a day for a week. And then uh, they went on the seventh day and they marched around it seven times. And then Joshua said, and uh, then shall ye shout. When you hear the trumpet sounding, "Then, then you shall shout. Okay, this is just getting better and better and better and better, isn't it? We're marching around at the bottom of this wall. The archers up on the top could just pick us out. uh, They're sharpshooters and just take us out. Can you imagine how they were thinking and, and feeling and all of that? But you know what happened when they shouted? There was a rumble. There was a roar and those big walls that you could drive chariots around on the top of them came tumbling down, and the Israelites plundered the city. Now, God had told them, don't take anything. This is not a city where you're going to be allowed to go in and take the spoils. But there was a guy in there, in the armies of Israel, who said, well, you can't let all this go to waste. I could be set up for the rest of my life. And this guy's name was Achan. And Achan took the things, the accursed things, the Bible calls them, and he hid them in his tent. He buried them. And he was going to take them home and sell them and live off of the proceeds after he got through with the battle. Well, something happened. There was a little town... And most of the time we call it Ai because it has an A and an I in it. But in Hebrew it would be Chai. Um, but that sounds weird. So uh, they were going and uh, whenever they got ready to leave, uh, Joshua was talking to his generals and they said, Hey, listen, this little town, we don't even need to take our full army. And Joshua was going, Okay, go and conquer it and then come back when you get through. Well, they got whipped and a lot of people died. And they came back and Joshua goes before the Lord. What in the world? I thought you were going to bless us. I don't understand this. And basically the Lord says, quit whining and get up. There's sin in the camp and that needs to be dealt with. Even though it was a secret sin, it was a destructive and a deadly sin. Remember that story? And so when they finally, through a process of elimination, they found out who it was, that it was Achan, and in chapter 7 of Joshua, verse 19, says, Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to Him. Did you know you glorify God by confessing your sin? That's what it says. You glorify God by confessing your sin, not by hiding it. And tell me now what you have done. Do not... Hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, two hundred shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing fifty shekels, I coveted them, and I took them, and there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. You know what we find here? Achan thought he could get away with it. Achan thought if nobody knows, I'll be okay. But there's always a problem with secret sin. You know what that is? God knows. God knows. And God deals with it. And so Achan thought he could handle it. He thought he could manage this. He thought he could get away with it. And that's the same thing that... You and I do whenever we sin. We sin and there's a way of escape that's promised. And we don't take the way of escape. We just stay right there. I'm going to do this regardless. I don't care what God says. I don't care what the consequences are. I'll manage it. I'll take care of it. And that never happens. Never happens. Because we have God to deal with. Because he sees what is in our mind and he sees what is in our heart, and it's pride that causes us to do that and to continue in sin, not to take the way of escape and to just... Think that we can handle it. We're thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. So that's the first step in repentance. You've got to humble yourself before the Lord. You've got to realize how vulnerable you are and that you can't handle it and you can't get away with it and you can't stand up against what God is going to do and you can't even manage the consequences of sin. It always gets away from you. Number two, you have to see the consequences of sin. How many people, if they knew what the consequences of their sin was going to be, that would have stopped them, but they couldn't see it. They may have been warned, but they couldn't see it. They may have had a glimpse of it, but they said, oh, that'll never happen to me. We live a lot of things in our life like that. We think that it'll never happen to us, but we need to see the consequences. And David says, and my sorrow... And by that, he's talking about my sense of loss and grief and mourning is continually before me. In other words, everywhere he steps, he steps into the dark, he steps into depression, he steps into weeping, he steps into loss, he steps into grieving, and it's um, that kind of thing to where if you've ever had your shadow in front of you because the sun was behind you your shadow always, always there you can't outrun your shadow it's always there, you're always stepping into it and David says I can't get out of this sorrow I can't get out of this grieving I can't get out of this despair that I am having here before me and if he had ever known that the sin, whatever it was that said, oh it'll be fun come on, it'll be great you need a little relief, you need a little bit of a break from all of this you've done so much for god surely he'll let you off the hook for this one thing the pleasures of sin that it mentions in the book of hebrews and uh, david is following that but he didn't see the consequences oh how often the consequences just catch up to us think about this because of sin moses wasn't able to enter the promised land moses Well, he's a lot better person than we are, used by God. I mean, I've never seen a burning bush. I've never stood before Pharaoh and turned my rod into a snake. I've never been able to bring plagues upon anybody. I've never even come close to that. I've never gone up on a mountain and met face-to-face with God and had God write down His Word, the Scripture, so that I could bring it down to other people. I've never experienced anything like that. Think of the miracles that took place in the wilderness that Moses was a part of. I mean, Moses, the hero of the Jewish faith, the hero of the Old Testament, the one that's even mentioned in the New Testament by believers, Moses. And yet he didn't get to go into the promised land. After leading those ornery, stubborn people for 40 years, God doesn't let him go into the promised land. Why? Because of Moses sin the people are grumbling the people are griping the people are blaming Moses because they're thirsty you can read about it in Numbers chapter 20 and the Lord uh, told Moses uh, take the rod and your brother Aaron and gather the congregation together and then he says speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield water and then you shall uh, bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. Okay, you remember the story? Most of you know it. Moses is so wrong, and, he, and I like it in the King James Version. And there it says, Ye rebels! And then he just strikes the rock twice. Now, one of the things we find out in the New Testament why, why was that a serious sin? The Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament that that rock was Christ. How many times was Christ to be smitten and to suffer for our redemption? Once. But Moses ruined the picture. Moses sinned against God and God says, because you didn't obey me, because you didn't believe me, because you thought you could take this into your own hand and do something more dramatic, I guess he thought maybe God wouldn't really going to do enough and so he got mad yelled at him and then beat on the rock and god was gracious enough to give the water for all of them but he also said moses as a consequence of this you, you you're not going to go into the promised land he gave him a glimpse of it but he didn't go it into the promised land now question Do you think that Moses would have been so out of control and angry and sinned against the Lord if he knew what it was going to cost? I don't think so. And so many times we don't think about the fact that there will be consequences and a price to pay. And so Moses didn't get to go into the promised land uh, because of this. And uh, I also think about... uh, Well, the subject of our psalm. What about King David? You remember he is uh, walking up on his palace in a time when the kings went to uh, war and David decided he just didn't need to go. That he could handle it and his armies could handle it. So he sends them along uh, to the war and he says, uh, go ahead and go and uh, let me know how things go while you're gone. Well... He gets bored or something, and in Second Samuel uh, chapter 12, we find that after he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, and after he has covered it up for a long time, several months, because the baby that she conceived hasn't been born yet, and uh, David, if you read Psalm 32, he says, your hand was heavy upon me, and I covered my sin, and uh, just dried up and, and just shriveled up and it uh, was weak and all of that. A little bit like uh, Psalm 38. But um, God sends a prophet. The prophet's name was, anybody remember? Nathan. Yeah, Nathan the prophet. And Nathan comes before him and tells him that story about the rich man, you know, killing the poor man's lamb. And David has that reaction. And can you imagine what it was like when self-righteous David standing up for the poor shepherd and, and I'll take care of this. And that's not going to happen in my kingdom, not on my watch. And can you imagine what it must have been like when Nathan, I picture Nathan with a long bony finger going, you are the man. Whew. And as a result of that, David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan goes, okay, the sin is taken from you. You're not going to die. But the child that you fathered here is going to die. And then he also says this, and the sword will never depart from your house. And it's going to rise up from your own family. Have you ever heard of Absalom? Absalom's rebellion? Have you ever heard about what happened in David's family with uh, Amnon and Tamar when uh, this boy rapes his own sister? And then because David feels just morally bankrupt in all of this, what is he going to say after what he's done with Bathsheba? So he doesn't do anything to his son. And so Absalom, Amnon's half-brother, he says, well, I'll do something. And so he murders him. I mean, everything just gets worse and worse. And then it goes from there to where Absalom actually tries to steal the kingdom from his own father, David. And David has to run for his life. Absalom eventually is killed in battle and David mourns over him but David's life do you think that when he was on that roof and he saw Bathsheba do you think if he knew what it was going to do to his family and to him through all of that do you think he would have said "Mm -mm, turn around go back inside but we don't always see or know the consequences of sin And David gives us a clue into what kind of man he was because after Bathsheba sent word to him, I'm pregnant. What did David do? He murdered her husband to cover it all up and then married her real quick so that nobody would be able to figure it up on the calendar that there'd been some hanky-panky going on there. He covered up his sin. What is that? Anytime we cover up our sin, there is this prideful idea of saying, I can handle this. I can manage the consequences, I can cover it up, and I can get away with it. Well, that didn't work for Moses, and in 2 Samuel chapter 12, it didn't work for David either, and he paid a a high price. Some people talk about the high cost of low living. David could say amen to that. You know, there's another thing that happens too whenever we continue in sin, we think we're keeping it private, but other people are stumbled. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, uh, we read this, But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Now, do you remember what Jesus told us about stumbling one of his little ones? He didn't say he was going to tie a millstone around your neck. That's not the punishment. He said it would be better for that person if they did. So think about tying a millstone around your neck and jumping into the sea. And you go, oh, that would be horrible. Well, Jesus said it's better than what will come to you if you uh, don't take care of his little ones. God takes it seriously seriously when you stumble one of his little ones. So whenever somebody can go, well, they do it, and it didn't seem to hurt them, so I guess I can do it too. Uh, God has something very severe to say about all of that. And so uh, we don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone. And how about this? Your personal walk with God suffers. Remember that joy? Remember that freedom? Remember that peace? Remember that zeal? Remember that hunger? Remember the victory that was in your life? What happened to it? Well, sin causes that to diminish. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is His ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, translation sin, your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Do we take verses like that seriously anymore? Do we ever really see that our relationship with God suffers and that's what's happened? It's because of sin? Now God will restore us. I mean, remember we saw a picture of God in the uh, prodigal son's father. I'm so thankful for that. But do we really understand? Leonard Ravenhill said one time, the only reason our church doesn't see revival is because we're content without it. And that really is true. We're okay. I'm okay. you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. You got anything you need to talk about or anything? No, I'm fine. Oh, I am too. Isn't it great that we're all so good and we're all so wonderful? And uh, the Holy Spirit is saying, it's not so great from my vantage point. I see the decay. I see the rottenness. I see the deterioration. I see the garbage that's in your mind and in your life and in your heart. And it affects our relationship and our walk with God. Okay? Number three, if we really want to repent, we need to learn to be a, I'm going to call it a quicker confessor. Why do we wait so long? Why do we take our time? Why are we not running to God? Why are we not running to the altar? Why are we not running to get right with him? Well, David said, for I will declare my iniquity. What is a declaration of iniquity? He's finally going to own up to it. He's finally going to, as we say, going to fess up. He's finally going to admit to it. Uh, some of those true crime shows and things like that, it's kind of amazing when they take people back into the room and the interrogator's working. You see good cop, bad cop, and all of those kind of things going on. And then finally the person breaks and they confess and it all comes out. They can't keep it up anymore. This is where David is. David's saying, I'm guilty before God. I've sinned against God, and I'm not going to cover it up anymore. I'm just going to let it all out. Well, what will happen if people know? David says, I don't care. What's going to happen if I admit to all of this? Will anybody ever trust me again or respect me again? He said, I don't care. I've got to get rid of this burden. I've got to get this right with God. That's the only thing that matters. You remember 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10, if we say that we have no sin, in other words, we're just covering it up, we deceive ourselves. There's that phrase. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess, homo is the word there. It means to say the same that God says or to agree with God. If we agree with God about our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. I like that word there, all unrighteousness. But then here's the warning. John must know us pretty well. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Boy, we better get to agreeing with God. Not defending ourselves, not excusing ourselves, not continuing on in sin, but be a quicker confessor. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So that's what we want to do. Confess and forsake. Confess and forsake. And number four, if we're going to repent, we've got to see sin as an enemy instead of an escape or a relief. Well, I just couldn't put up with it anymore. I just had to do something. I couldn't take it anymore. Well, what else was I going to do? How about obey God? How about trust God? How about have faith? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But we don't. We think we're entitled. We think we can do it. And um, David said, I will be in anguish over my sin. Psalm 97.10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. But where does that start? We've got to hate evil. We cozy up to our sin. It's like trying to pet a rattlesnake and it never works out well. We've got to hate sin like God does. That's exactly what he expects. Romans chapter 12 verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Proverbs chapter 6 verses 16 through 19. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven is an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren okay how many of those are you guilty of anybody want to confess and you know uh, we look at that and we go well at least I didn't do all of them I haven't been a murderer and uh, yet we look at those kind of things and we go yeah but uh, I've done enough I've done enough and how dare I look down my nose at anyone else when I've committed these abominations like pride and That type of thing. And yet we get so arrogant. Well, at least I'm not a homosexual. Well, at least I'm not an adulterer. Well, at least I'm not... And we compare the worst of us with the worst of society and we come out looking pretty good. What we need to do, of course, as you know, is compare ourselves to God. And so David now is getting things right. This is how you repent. This is how you deal with your sin. This is how you get things right. And it requires a change you don't naturally feel this way about your sin but this is what God calls us to do this is correction this is our sanctification this is getting right with God and it involves repentance from our sin okay let's pray together about that Lord this is so far from who we are we're more like Adam Making excuses about our sin. Covering up our sin like Achan did. Thinking we can manage it like David did. Being completely ignorant of consequences of sin like Moses appeared to be. And yet we come before you tonight saying, you know. And you know all things. And we ask you to cleanse us by the blood of the Lord Jesus. We ask you to forgive us of our sins because of what he did on the cross for us. And we ask you to bring us to a place where we hate sin like you hate sin. And if there's any place that sin ought to be hated, even though we love people, it ought to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So forgive us. We are hypocrites. We're sorry. We never live up to our promises. We fail. And we're like David, so close to falling. We're just walking on the edge and thinking that nothing's happened so far, so we're okay. And we just don't really see how serious it is. So forgive us, cleanse us, and change us for your glory. And thank you for being patient with us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let.